tired SLP, I know just what you need. Go grab some caffeine, find your favorite seat. It's time for coffee, tea, and three SLPs. So I'm so pumped today. We have Tori with us, and Tori is someone who I've been sitting next to in my psych class, and uh, we just have had such interesting conversations because we have a lot of breakout discussions in this class, and she and I have just really, really vibed a lot. So um, yeah, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is fun. This seems like it'll be a really good time. It's a great time, Tori. (laughs) Yeah, you can't you can't hear this on the audio, but Kyla's dancing right now. <laughs> what are like those noises that dancers always do when they're teaching a dance? Like boom, cut, hit the boom, goo. When I'm teaching though, sometimes it's hard to like keep the counts in your head. So I'm just like, and that did it that Yeah, so we're so excited to have Tori with us. and um the three of us Kyla and Julie and I we're all speech therapists and so we're just excited to have someone who's actually not a speech therapist on the podcast because um we're just excited to hear your lens on thing and your things and your perspective on things so let's start with just Tell us about you. So anything you want, where you grew up, what your research interests are, whatever you feel compelled to share. Yeah. So I'm Tori. I was originally, I I preface it like that because I still have a little bit of a, like, I guess a feeling about being originally from New York City and then moving to New Jersey. So I say that I'm from the tri-state area. I'm from both New York and New Jersey because both have equal importance to me um, and to my family. My dad's from upstate New York. Um, And yeah, I was raised on the East Coast for most of my life, went to college in the Midwest, and now I'm back on the East Coast, which is my ultimate goal. And I've been really enjoying uh, being a part of a psych grad program, which is how we met through one of our classes. And I'm doing developmental psych. which is a focus on um, sort of over across development um, at certain points in time. Do you hit certain goals? Like what things do we expect from you studying sort of that long overtime piece, which is different from other fields of psych that focus um, specifically on uh, like clinical psych will focus on disorders, cognitive psych will focus on brain processing um, and um, social psych will focus on um social behaviors. And so I focus, I can kind of talk about those particular areas or I can study parts of those areas, but I put a developmental lens on that. Um, And I should say that I'm a student, so I'm still learning a lot. And I really do love being back in school, (laughs) weirdly enough. Same. I can tell that we both have that, that like, I don't want to say nerd gene, but like, the nerd gene where we're just excited to be in class and like we do the reading and we show up and we've got like our notes and we're just ready to go so um yeah it was fun to sit next to you and especially um the class that we were in which is um, a class that focuses on developmental psych and that type of perspective um for me at least like I think about my own research area. And so having the opportunity to read a lot of different articles that also are developmental or you can apply developmental lens to is really, really cool. Um, especially things that I just would not have known about, like motor development. Never thought that I would be reading articles about that or getting to um, know that that's such a broad and important field that people are very, very passionate about. I wouldn't have known. So yeah, it's all really cool. Yeah. And I have really changed my idea of what development means, what that word means from this class, because I feel like when we think of developmental psych or development, blah, 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 it we always I always think of kids. I always think of like especially young kids, like early childhood development, child language development, like those are kinds of the areas that come to mind. But 
our professor has challenged us to think of development as across the whole lifespan and also like second by second. So it's just changing over time because he studies like genetic stuff. And so of course with like a gene or, or a cell, like it's development is going to be within one minute, like a whole lifetime. So that's Whoa. just like what mind blowing to think about. When I was thinking about the field that I wanted to go into and thinking about like the subfield of psychology, because you apply to a subfield, you don't apply just to psychology. Um, I really wanted something that would allow me to have a certain perspective on the whole, on the whole, and um, put things in a certain context. And thinking about things across time as like this really cool, like everything is informing the person at this point in time, leading to more things to inform them across different points of time was super interesting and important, I think, to me. Um, and also I can still technically study like areas that'll bleed over into other areas of psych. So there is more of that being in the middle balance between the different fields. So the DSM has changed so much. What do you think about that? Or how does that impact you when you're moving forward in your field? I think the DSM and a lot of people have various feelings, I think, on the DSM. Uh, just because, again, when you're going off of symptomology and a certain threshold you have to meet, um, mm -hmm. it can be tough because you might end up leaving out some people. Um, if you don't get to them early, they may not get diagnosed early, especially for something with ADHD, um, where certain symptoms are a lot less noticeable. And specifically because ADHD has um, three sort of sub-diagnoses that you get, um, each with kind of different symptomology. So you have that hyperactive type, which often gets diagnosed or over-diagnosed. Um, the inattentive usually gets pretty left behind um, just because the symptoms are harder to notice. And then the combined type also um, generally as well is diagnosed enough, but um, certainly symptoms that are externalizing. Mm -hmm. So it's complicated with the DSM because you're going off of symptomology that's important. But also if you don't meet a certain threshold for symptoms, but you are close to certain symptoms, um, mm -hmm. you might not get a formal diagnosis, which means you might not formally get services that can help you, um, right. which where we draw that line, how we draw that line, I'm not in charge of, and I don't know exactly how they came to the certain conclusions that they did, but it can be tough when you feel like a kid should have, um, certain things or accommodations in place to help them better perform, but also you don't want to have like the numbers of ADHD are already ri like rising a lot. I just saw like an article or a news article that was saying that it's skyrocketing and there are not enough services or um, drugs that are able to like be prescribed to enough people. Is there a theory as to why the diagnoses are skyrocketing? I think it's, I think there are many reasons. My feeling is is that ADHD diagnoses are, are kind of becoming to similar to depression and anxiety in that symptoms of ADHD will be experienced by like by most people at some points in time but ADHD it has and I forget the particular phrasing it negatively impacts your ability to function like the level of functionality is what really like impacts that diagnosis. And so more kids who um, experience certain symptoms are more likely to get brought in um, in certain settings. So if you come from a background where you have access to those resources, more likely to get a diagnosis or not. Um, if you experience some of those symptoms, sometimes you'll get diagnosed young and you shouldn't have been diagnosed, but then you're put on, you know, mm -hmm. certain treatment plans and you can't. And so that also impacts you across the time. So they may not, there might be kids out there that don't necessarily have ADHD, have symptomology, but not ADHD, who then are dealing with the impacts of now being like having had a lot of um, 
prescriptions for treatments that they shouldn't have been on. And then you also have a population, you have several populations that are not being diagnosed, specifically girls are underdiagnosed, mm-hmm. whereas boys are um, overdiagnosed simply because um, there's there was an interesting article about masking, and it's not just for ADHD, but it's where girls, because of the social stigma and the, um, I guess, how do I want to phrase this? Because girls are held to a different standards than boys are in terms of behavior and externalizing symptoms, it's less socially acceptable for them to act out those externalizing symptoms. So it may just be that um, girls are masking and the inattentive type of ADHD is a result of that masking. Um, So they're still experiencing symptoms, but they're enacting them very differently and it's more internalizing, which is harder to notice. Mm -hmm. That's really yeah, interesting because we see that in autism too, right? Mm-hmm. That girls right. are not nearly as diagnosed as boys because they're masking and and they're they're learning from their peers and they're kind of internalizing all of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they're better at masking than yes. boys are. Yeah, and it comes out in, or even I'm reading more about how just the f- um, female autistic or fe- individual with autism profile is just totally different <laughs> than what we see in boys. It kind of sounds like there's that similarity across fields. Um, but yeah, cause I'm thinking about the evaluations that I get now of new students or when they get new psych evals, I hardly ever, ever just see ADHD and attentive type as the diagnosis. It's usually the hyperactive or combined. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it must be, I'm assuming it's really hard then from what you said to cross that threshold so to speak, to get that inattentive type diagnosis. Yeah. And it's especially difficult because a lot more adults now are getting diagnosed with ADHD. And I think a lot more women Mm -hmm. are getting diagnosed later with ADHD, which I can't even imagine the like mental health that that would like how that would affect your mental health after living your life with ADHD experiencing the impact on your ability to function in academic settings. Um, Also, the fact that ADHD is comorbid with basically every neurodevelopmental disorder and a lot of other mental health disorders as well. It's heavily comorbid with anxiety, with depression, um, with even like certain behaviors. Um, And so having lived your life maybe comorbid for a lot of other things and then having to deal with the emotional stress of having had this but not had any ways to deal with it. I can only imagine how stressful that that would be. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, just simply because it's a different type and it's harder to diagnose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what got you interested in this field and ADD and ADHD? Um, There are several sort of reasons for it a couple are that I have a couple of close friends who have ADHD and so like that in of itself is interesting to see how there are differences in talking about the differences um in development and then also in my undergrad I was really fortunate to have the opportunity to take a lot of really cool courses I took a psychopathology class and that was a particular um disorder that I found interesting the fact that it's very overdiagnosed and underdiagnosed in certain groups. Like how can a disorder be both under and overdiagnosed? Um, so learning about that was really interesting. I also took a couple of clinical psych courses talking about treatments, and I always centered my projects on ADHD. And so over time, I've just built up this sort of interest in that particular area. And also it's continuing to grow in my interests in it are continuing to grow because of this this impact that it's having globally. And it's said to increase, even though the percent, we're not sure if there actually are more kids out there with ADHD now, or if it's just we're dealing with the impacts of kids being overdiagnosed or too young and then missing people later on. I feel like I'm hearing so much, especially in COVID times about screen time and ADHD and is 
Is that a valid link to make? Is that not a valid link to make? Do you have thoughts on that? I feel like that's kind of why I was like citing depression and anxiety as a good sort of like measure in terms of how it's perceived publicly, like because ADHD is connected to emotion regulation and attentional control and working memory, all of which may have been affected to some extent by the pandemic, like sitting in your seats, your attentional resources have been like a lot of children's attentional resources may have been impacted. Um, Working memory. I don't know about most like specific um, age groups, but certainly for me, having graduated during COVID, you weren't asked to memorize things half as much as you were before. You kind of are just taught and listened to a random person on the other end of the screen. So I'm not sure um, how that was impacted in children. And I think because parents and other adults are seeing these issues come about where kids are not paying attention or regulating as much, um, they're perceiving that as ADHD. Um, and of course, if you have the resources to be able to go get a diagnosis, you will. Um, and there's a, I, I can't speak for people who are diagnosing, but, um, if you have a kid come in with a lot of atten- like issues with attention, I think it's very easy to then, especially also attention and also emotional regulation when you've had kids trapped in their homes for a while. I feel like the particular events of COVID meant that these kids might be exhibiting symptomology close to ADHD, but it may not actually be ADHD. In my opinion, I don't know if that's Makes 100% correct. I'd be curious to see. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. What did you mean by um, attentional resources? So you had mentioned like some kids don't have the attentional resources or people don't in general, like when we were fully remote. So could you speak to that a little bit more? Yeah. Um, So a big factor in ADHD is that sort of it's connected a lot to executive control, which a huge part of that is regulation. So the ability to know what you what stimuli or what things you have to focus on versus things that you shouldn't be focusing on. So getting like kind of tuning out the things you shouldn't be and focusing on the mm-hmm. things you have to. Um, and in ADHD, that's much, much harder. And so um, in terms of kids with ADHD, and this is just from some of the work that I've read in terms of um, EEGs, ERPs, is that kids with ADHD might have a different system of attention that they're relying on. So it's not like, I'm not going to apply a deficit model to that where they don't have the ability to control their attention or regulate their emotions. But because of the, because of how they are, they just naturally have a different system. And mm-hmm. the way that we currently have like technology and the way that we currently teach where we have kids sit in classrooms for like seven hours. Um, and especially during COVID where you have kids at home on technology for like seven hours and then they go on technology later. I could imagine where that would be sort of impacted. When we think about the attentional resources required to sit in front of a screen or sit in a classroom, it's a lot. And then it makes me think, um, and Kyle, I think this goes into your question. How how do we parse out or how do you parse out executive function or executive dysfunction versus ADHD? Or are they just do they always have to be comorbid then? I think that each I mean, a lot of articles, they kind like they describe executive functioning kind of differently. So the explanations may vary, but it's connected to certain skills, particularly skills that are important for organizing, for planning, um, and um, things. So, under the umbrella of executive functioning, are a lot of a lot of things, and a big one is regulation. So that includes emotion regulation, that includes attentional regulation, um, and working memory is another big one that falls under the umbrella of um, executive functioning, which you think of, if you think about ADHD, it's connected to all of those elements very closely. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think about the symptoms where kids with ADHD are um, sometimes they're like, sometimes they're more forgetful or they're not paying attention to details that taps into working memory. Um, 
sometimes they can become very frustrated or um, have a lot of outbursts, which is connected to that emotion regulation piece. You um, kids with ADHD also in, on the in inattentive end of that also can experience sensitivity to rejection. So there's this, there's an interesting hypothesis, and I think it's super cool that um, kids with ADHD, if they experience rejection, are more a lot more sensitive to that than just people um, going about their daily lives. So someone saying no to them or someone socially rejecting them has a, a bigger impact on them emotionally. And it impacts that sub area. Um, and of course, attention, attentional resources to pay attention to a task, to sit through tasks as well. So it's very much interconnected with executive functioning, which means that it's probably a system based thing. So that system of executive functioning is different in kids with ADHD um, mm -hmm. or manifests differently in kids with ADHD. Um, affecting all of those resources at once. So you're actually, you're very much right that like it impacts, you may see only one impact of it in a child. Like you may see, oh, a child's not focusing on something, but it's impacting their whole system. Um, and a lot of the areas underneath those different sub areas as well. Yeah, I feel like executive function's crazy. <laughs> it's just this huge complex web and yeah, I think my fault is I shouldn't be looking at attention and executive function so differently that, you know, they're kind of like whoop, well, together. That's also how it's advertised. Like mm -hmm. when you read art, like not scientific articles, but when you read general articles about ADHD or hear about it on the news, they're not really separating or like ta they're ta they are separating and they're talking about it um, as this different thing. They also apply the deficit model and how they talk about ADHD. Like you don't have a skill, you don't have the capacity to regulate your attention as opposed to kids with ADHD absolutely can regulate their attention. It's just where are they regulating that attention is where the problems mm -hmm. lie. So oftentimes you see with um, ADHD is that they will focus their attention on things that they really are passionate and want to focus it on and they'll almost hyper-focus on it, which is an interesting sort of thing that they can focus almost to the detriment of themselves. Um, so hyper-focusing um, is when you sort of like tune out all other tasks, like you mm -hmm. are only solely focused on one thing. So if you are a kid who really, really is into a book, you will read through the entire book. You won't care that you're sleepy or sleep deprived. You won't care that you're hungry. You will just try to go through it because you're so interested and invested in that. You'll put everything else on pause, um, which is incredible attentional control. It's just the subject matter is and is probably not good if you're hungry or need sleep. You probably want to focus on other things and pay attention to those other things. That's really mm -hmm. interesting that it's it's cited as this deficit but really it's not, it's the opposite. It, you have too good attention. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That element is like, I think what's really kind of cool about it is that there are a lot of things that seem to like, it depends on the context and it depends on what, um, we see that there are a lot of really smart individuals with ADHD. Um, despite there sort of being a stigma that kids with ADHD don't do well or perform well in academic settings, which may very well be true for a good number of them. But it also could mean that there was an issue with the particular systems that are in place that we have in place. So sitting for seven hours, perhaps if schools had more breaks for kids, maybe that would be something that would be fixed or um, allowing kids to pick certain electives that they're more interested and passionate in maybe that also might have an impact because if you're a kid who's really interested in computers, but most of your classes do not involve any of that type of stuff, you may just well, very well interested in that and it'll affect your performance. I'm thinking too about, um, you're saying like how it's advertised is a big part of it. I'm thinking about when we have that advertising using the deficit model so I was in the car listening to the radio now. I was just thinking of this ad that I just heard. And I was like, what? This is ridiculous. Um, but I was like, 
your child, due to the COVID pandemic, your child might be more at risk for having developed ADD or ADHD. Kids with ADHD, and it's like that male authoritative voice. Mm-hmm. There's like kids with ADHD have a huge risk of falling behind in school and will never learn blah 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 and mm-hmm. will never succeed. So go get your kid tested. You might be entitled to compensation if your kid is a failure. <laughs> um and that's kind of how it's done. And I'm like this is actually so terrifying to listen to because this is not reality. Um but I can imagine hearing that and it sounds really convincing and then you're like oh my god i think my kid has adhd and they can't they'll never be able to do these things because this ad on the radio just told me that and it's terrifying to listen to (laughs) so that just kind of sparked that memory when you said that um yeah there's a lot of social yeah against like even though Mm -hmm. we like to think of ourselves as and we are technically better at handling like mental health stigma than we've ever been I feel like as a country and as a society but it's still Mm -hmm. not great and how we deal with particular disorders there's still a a lack of understanding that gets out to Mm -hmm. the general public and the general population and um, that in and of itself that deficit model and also the way in which ADHD affects children's behaviors with their peers does have an impact on them and does impact like that stigma that occurs. And it's still, it's still not, not great. Um, Cause it's a directional relationship. If you're a kid who's not sitting, like who's like jumping around in their seat or is spacing out, you're like, your peers may not want to hang out with you. Your peers may not want to be friends with you. Um, They might, even if they don't even know that you have a formal ADHD diagnosis, they may be more likely to isolate you, which in turn, you continue to exhibit those behaviors um, as a result of that to maybe um, try to make friends or without even realizing it, you may be just being impulsive or talking about things that you're super passionate about, not paying attention to the fact that your peers have tuned you out. So Mm -hmm. there's like a cyclical effect that will happen. Um, that informs all of those things. Yes, this is what we were talking about um, in mm-hmm. class. And I found this idea so interesting because I had talked about um, DLD and friendship was sort of what my um, project is on this semester. And Tori had a great question about this relationship between like the child and my case, what I'm thinking about is the child with DLD who struggles to connect socially because of these communication problems, um, difficulties with vocabulary and grammar and sentence structure and all of these like language-based difficulties. Um, but then the peers react to that in a certain way, um, and, and then that also impacts the child with DLD and how their DLD presents. Like, can you, can you explain what we were talking, like in better words, can you explain your idea about that? Cause so interesting. <laughs> well, that was, I thought that was pretty good. Yeah. I, I won't speak for your particular field, but I'll, I think for ADHD, I, I, I had to write a really interesting paper on um, ADHD and peer Uh, relationships and um, kids with ADHD who have these externalizing symptoms especially will exhibit those externalizing symptoms in a classroom. So um, a good example is they'll be impulsively interrupting their peers when they're talking about something. Um, And that seems like a very small thing. But of course, if you're a young child, you don't like being interrupted. You don't like someone who is constantly interjecting with their your own like thoughts when you don't get to speak, which may lead to more isolation from peers, um, which in turn, the kid with ADHD um, may not really understand why the behavior is triggering the reaction. And they instead may continue to do that. They continue to come into the conversation, even if they're not wanted. Um, and that's just like one example. Um, another thing that does happen sometimes is kids with ADHD, especially young children, have this thing called positive illusory bias which Hmm. um is where they over 
underestimate their abilities. Like they think that they're doing a lot better than they actually are. So a kid with ADHD may not like necessarily think I am interrupting these peers and that's why they don't want to hang out with me. They may be thinking I'm doing just fine. I don't know why they're not hanging out with me. Mm -hmm. And that leads to isolation. You have kids with ADHD who are isolated, who are becoming more and more isolated, especially for the kids with externalizing uh, symptomology. And um, because already there's a heavy comorbidity with a lot of things, including anxiety and depression, those factors may then be impacting the kid because here they are with no social support. And um, that also then is informing their behaviors with peers. If you're a kid who's very anxious, who now has ADHD and you've had this sort of reinforced, if whenever I speak up or interact with people, something bad happens, you may not also want to go out and reach out to those peers. And so there's a lot of like impacts that are happening both ways. And it's not always on the like, it's not at all on the fault to the fault of the other students. If you're interrupted or if you're dealing with a peer that you don't, you've never had to experience that type of behavior before, or oftentimes because the behavior is heavily stigmatized, you think that that's a bad kid and you shouldn't behave with them um, mm-hmm. or you shouldn't play with them, I should say. Um, that also is not on them. It's also not on their parents because, of course, if they were doing a certain behavior the parents would usually discourage that. And so their understanding of behaviors and what's acceptable and not is defined pretty strongly. And so it's just kind of this effect that's happening that's leading to these sort of factors. And um, I'm not sure nowadays if it's much better in schools. I know when I was in school, there was still pretty, there was still pretty much a stigma in that way. If you were a kid who didn't pay attention, you were thought of as not a good student, probably didn't want to hang out with them. Right. Yeah. I think there's definitely still a stigma, but now we throw fidgets at kids. Mm-hmm. Fidgets are, yeah, I find it's like, Which oh, can be helpful, um, but. Take, take this fidget. It's like, it. we really push fidgets on kids. Like this <laughs> fidget do. is going to help. Just use it. I promise. It's going to fix you. So <laughs> see this see this spinny thing just just spin at this with your fingers uh, and you'll be able to pay attention oh <laughs> uh, fidget pusher what was um tori could you say that uh term again it was positive illusory bias okay i yeah when you said that i immediately thought of like three different kids that go to my school wow. they like and then what's interesting is I get I'll get asked like oh are are you seeing these typical these three students you typically work with them and I'll say oh no not usually um they'll be like well I think they're having a really hard time with perspective taking like they're you know they don't they don't see or they're having a hard time seeing that like other people are annoyed with what they're doing in class or other people didn't respond well because of something they did in that moment and then it we talk about it as like difficulty with perspective taking, mm. but, and that always seemed off to me. Um, I was like, I don't know if it's like a, perspe- a perspective taking mm. thing with this kid. Um, after like being with them for a little bit. So that, yeah, that freight, that terminology and definition actually like makes more sense to me for them. Yeah. I didn't know that it existed before I took a school psych course. Mm. Um, I just happened to like be in contact with someone who's like, oh, my colleague did this particular paper. And I had never known that that exists. It's not something I feel like is commonly talked about because Mm. technically like an overestimation of abilities occurs in all of us, especially when we're kids. Like Mm. when you're a child, you think that you can fly. If someone says, don't climb on the hay, like you'll climb on the hay, even though you know, like mm-hmm. we know that if you fall off, you'll get hurt and break your arm. The kid will be like, I can still fly. It's fine. And they overestimate their abilities. After a certain point that, that starts to shift and it starts to become a more, like, I feel like mature process where you're like, well, I'm not sure if I can exactly do this, but I can do that instead. And you start mm-hmm. to understand where your skills are. Um, Versus kids with ADHD where, especially how they, so how they calculate this positive illusory bias is parents and teachers 
give reports on the kid's behavior and then you get the kid's report on their own behavior oh, and you compare the two and see where they do. Um, and with kids with ADHD, they are much more likely to overestimate their abilities. Even if an interaction doesn't go well, the kid will be like, I still think I did a good job with this task. Um, which of course would explain why you couldn't understand why a certain behavior might trigger a certain reaction. Like you think that, oh, mm -hmm. I think that playtime went really, really well. And their peer was like, no, that child was incredibly bossy and was telling me what to do the whole time. Or the teacher noticed that type of behavior or the parent noticed that type of behavior and was like, this is not what it actually is. And that, I mean, my perspective on where that comes from is a protect, it's a protective factor because there's mm -hmm. a rejection sensitivity, it's a way of protecting yourself from dealing with the consequences of that um, and experiencing the impact and anxiety that comes from rejection. Mm -hmm. So along with that, I just learned about this thing this week. I don't think it's a new thing. Um, I think it's just new to me. Uh, rejection sensitivity dysphoria. Mm -hmm. So I'm learning about that and it, it sounds like it kind of could go hand in hand. Um, if anyone can explain it better than me, <laughs> but uh, what I'm learning about it right now, which is maybe not very accurate, um, is that this some kids will have this rejection sensitivity dysphoria where they'll almost, when when they've been re rejected by a peer, like a peer does not want to be friends with them. Okay, some other kids will be like, okay, cool, we're not friends, and they'll go off. But then some kids might have this dysphoria where they like almost hyper fixate on the students now that have or peers that have rejected them and then continue to perseverate or pursue them. And the more they're rejected, the more they want to pursue them. Is is that a good way of explaining it? Um, that's my understanding of it now. And I'm just learning about it like this week. Yeah, I think it's it's very much, I think, when someone rejects, when you perceive a rejection or something went wrong, you perceive something is going wrong, something you've had a negative interaction with someone, um, you feel you feel the impact of that more. So yeah, exactly what you're saying. There may be the need to hyperfocus fixate on that child who won't be friends with you or to fixate upon the event that led up to it. So mm -hmm. um, if you're playing with a bunch of kids and you're a kid who, you know, is perceived to be bossy by the other kids, but that's just your symptomology. That's just like how you are interacting with other kids at that point in time. And you're, you have rejection sensitivity. You may, that particular event may have a huge impact on you, your willingness to engage with kids again because if you are very sensitive to rejection why would you put yourself in a position to be rejected again mm -hmm. um right. and that's just one i feel like sort of outcome there are probably a lot of different outcomes mm -hmm. i'm i'm not familiar with rejection sensitivity as its own disorder but i know it exists as, as its own disorder as well mm -hmm. as as a symptom or some not symptom is not the correct word as something that can be experienced a lot in children with adhd mm-hmm Right. Yeah. It's just, in, I don't know it's interesting because I feel like those two things have such an impact on how we do quote unquote social skills in our field. Um, but they're not, they're two things that even though I think the more I'm learning about them, seeing how important they are to how I approach certain students, they're not things that I learned about necessarily um, mm -hmm. when I was going to school. So just interesting. I feel like that's a piece that our field could really benefit from that's not necessarily talked about amongst SLPs. Yeah, I think something that I've been sort of thinking about a lot is integration between multiple fields because we have kids in a classroom like that mm -hmm. they're going to go like most schools now, most kids nowadays will be going through schooling um, at a pretty like standard pace each year you move up to another grade. But mm -hmm. um, I don't think rarely do you have people interacting or you have the teachers interacting with researchers who are interacting with school psychologists who are interacting with re like specific people who are doing research in those areas. Like there's, I feel like a lot of opportunity to like, I guess, 
have diverse perspectives on how to best care for children. Mm-hmm. And the research exists. Like there, you can go, I can technically go and look up articles for school psych to gain more perspective. Um, I could run studies pertaining to education and school psych. School psych people can read, will read developmental papers on certain perspectives, but there's no real quick, easy like combination where you like automatically know to go out of your way to certain articles. And then certainly for most schools, they won't have a school psychologist or like multiple school psychologists that one person who's a guidance counselor who's in charge of all the students. Um, and so research resource wise, how do you get to the majority of kids who don't have access to someone um, who has this knowledge about how to best practice in schools? And especially pre post COVID, how do you tell teachers the best methods? How do you tell parents? Because the parents nowadays we're seeing have a huge administrative power over teachers, which is leading to, which is not leading, but there's a huge part of that that is impacting why teachers are leaving the particular mm-hmm. areas that they are, simply because parents have a sort of way that they expect schools to teach. schools are trying to teach kids in a certain way teachers then who are in the classroom have a certain perspective and then we as a completely outside subfield who are just doing research are saying these are what you should be doing and we just Mm -hmm. study so it's like a cycle of we're all kind of not exchanging information that we need to be exchanging because there's a lot of different perspectives on what is best practice Tori I heard this idea the other day (laughs) exactly relevant to this. So, so bear with me, but it's, uh, and this is not my idea. This is someone else's idea, but it's a Tinder, but for researchers and clinicians who want to do, who are interested in similar work. So a researcher can go on and be like, oh, attend, check attention and dyslexia or like whatever. And then the clinician also checks those things. And then if they both swipe right, then they get to work together. Demi. <laughs> wow. That is, <laughs> that is an interesting idea. You know? Anyway. <laughs> but I, <laughs> I, aside from Tinder for research practitioner pra- um, uh, relationships, um, everything you're saying, well, I have, I'm like taking notes on this whole conversation. It's so interesting. I love hearing your thoughts on these things. Um, One thing that I've started to hear about, this is more going back to that interrupting piece um, and thinking about peer relations is um, with autism, we talk about the double empathy problem. So it's not that autistic people don't have social skills. It's that they communicate well with generally with other autistic people. Um, and it's this, um, disconnect between autistic and non-autistic brains in a sense that leads to the social breakdowns. And I almost wonder if, is there any talk about this with ADHD? Because I know I've heard, um, specifically an autistic SLP say when I'm with other autistic people, we're always interrupting each other. And like, that's just the communication style. And then with Mm -hmm. you bringing this up about ADHD, I wonder if there's any sort of talk about like the communication style within ADHD um, from Mm -hmm. this like non-deficit lens, just seeing it as a difference. What do you think about that? I think that's interesting. I I'm not familiar with any work that is currently done that I'm sure there is some stuff about peer relationships between kids with ADHD I think in part because most of the kids with ADHD um, have different subdiagnoses so they'll have different symptoms mm-hmm. so the language again might be different even with kids between the combined type and the hyperactive type there will be differences that manifest within those students um, I also think um it depends on how they connect. Like I am not as familiar with if there are any communities for people with ADHD. I don't think that there, at least as of what I understand, there isn't like organizations or necessarily that type of specific social support that's always applied within schools. Whereas because autism, from my understanding, 
it's a the social interaction piece is so crucial to that diagnosis. There's a lot more focus and emphasis put on that. And um, I can definitely imagine where it would be a lot more easy to find individuals with autism that even though that's on a spectrum of its on its own, and it's not like every diagnosis of autism is going to be 100% the same. Um, I certainly think that there are probably a little more like ways to connect to that also because autism, I think, I don't know if it's overdiagnosed or underdiagnosed. So I'm not going to like definitely can be refuted, but I think for the most part, diagnoses of autism tend to be pretty like firmly in place and tend to be correct. Whereas diagnoses of ADHD may not be where there are symptom, there are certain symptomologies that you share, but to a different extent. Um, so I think definitely would be really interesting to see if peer relationships would work. I could definitely see where it would be helpful to have someone who shares the same perspective. Um, I think especially for old people who are older who have a diagnosis can then probably connect better with individuals who have had it for years. At, at a kid level, I'm not sure. I think just again, because I think autism for some reason has more like validity. Is that weird to say that I feel like when I think about autism, I think of it more as an actual disorder that ADHD, and this is also that bias that comes into play with how it's being reported and how it's being seen, is it doesn't feel as valid. And I think that's because over time, there's been a lot of like kind of whittling away at that as a serious thing that happens to people. Cause it's, it's like you, I think you've mentioned in class, having a certain diagnosis is like being a part of a certain cultural group and having a certain identity. And I think for whatever reason, the identity of individuals with ADHD feels a lot more confusing to me. Mm-hmm. I think it's the better way to articulate it is that it identity wise feels different for people with ADHD, mm-hmm. as opposed to if you have um, something else that very clearly presents and is very clearly stated from the onset, you can easily find more easily find people who are understanding of that is automatically a disorder that I think of. And I know that there are going to be certain things that are different. I wonder how much of it too relates to the treatment approaches across these two communities. Like um, for a while, like (laughs) autism awareness, autism treatment, looking for the autism cure was such a, was so, so intensely Mm. marketed. and then you ended up with some pretty ableist practices. So then the individuals create communities to be like, hey, we actually hate this. Please stop. Um, so now there's communities that like actively need to advocate um, and get be like, this is identity wise. This is who we are. This is who we look like. Um, and this is our voice. Whereas... I think what's maybe tricky with ADHD that I, you know, not to say that there were com- people with ADHD are completely, you know, immune to ableist practices and treatment, but I think it it's harder because there wasn't, you know, necessarily ADHD awareness, ADHD treatment, finding the cure for ADHD, and then the subsequent, like, please stop <laughs> from the people who have ADHD. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't seem like there was that cycle necessarily. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if that has an impact on it. Um, mm-hmm. but I don't know. I think, but obviously this is me as a neurotypical human being um, asserting these things. So I don't know how much, you know, that observation actually holds. I, I I agree. I think, I, I think, and this is like, again, something I don't necessarily believe, but I think is something that definitely happens is when you are thinking about certain disorders that affect mental function, when you're thinking about across the spectrum of like intellectual disabilities, learning disabilities, all of that, they're kind of all lumped within the same category, but some of them seem to have more like seem to be taken in a different way than others. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and I'll also like add neurodevelopmental into the mix. There's a lot of different names and they all kind of fall under certain umbrellas and some are more related to others. And because there's a lot of com- 
comorbidity, someone with ADHD might also have an intellectual disability. Um, it feels to me that sometimes in these discuss in discussions about mental health disorders, there can often be an instinct to be like, but what about the biology? How is it impacting you? Like, what is the cause of it? Like, there's an idea of biological reductionism, where you want to find a cure, you want to find an identifier for it. Mm-hmm. And because maybe with autism, there's been more discussion around that and more like really terrible discussion, I should say, around that with people trying mm-hmm. to find a cure for something that is just mm-hmm. who people are. Um, right. Whereas in ADHD, I think maybe people don't think of it as much as a group of people with that type of experience. It's a group of people who happen to have this thing that manifests differently as opposed to we are a collective group of people with ADHD. I think it's it's kind of it's it's weird that some disorders get grouped differently and have different sort of identities within those groups. Like if you think about individuals with anxiety, like mm-hmm. I don't know if there's a lot of social support for those groups and a frustration that I think comes about is that for individuals who have diagnosed anxiety when they start to talk about their symptoms people from the outside will be like, well, I feel that too. And I have that as well. And Mm -hmm. so people don't see that as unique to that group. They see it as something that's universal. Mm -hmm. ADHD, because it's connected to functions that, again, we can also experience, like just as human beings, like the ability to focus your attention. Well, yeah, of course I space out too when it's something I'm not interested in. Mm -hmm. You can easily be like, it's something that um, everyone experiences. Um, whereas autism, I guess there's more of a separation and I don't Mm -hmm. know exactly where that, that parsing comes from. And it's oftentimes reduces the uh, groups that are being affected in not the best way. That actually makes me think too, like, um, how much of all of this is act is like, typically, especially like we were saying earlier, the, that um, how in a classroom, for example, ADHD appears, like how easy is it just to label a kid with ADHD as a kid who's just acting out and misbehaving? Mm -hmm. Like, oh no, this kid's fine. Yeah, he has a hard time with attention. He just like misbehaves. And it's almost presented as a choice. Like, okay, we're going to create all these behavioral incentives. We're going to create these behavioral plans to get this kid to behave better. But really what we might what might be more effective is like okay we have to consider this adhd diagnosis a very serious diagnosis that impacts function so really where do we how do we approach and if this kid has a different attentional system and a different organization system then why don't we create supports or mm-hmm. um a structure around them that supports that hyper focus and takes advantage of their strengths well not takes advantage <laughs> of their strengths that's a terrible way to put it <laughs> But like (laughs) focuses more on how we can use this kid's strengths. But I feel like oftentimes, yeah, it's like, well, Sue Lynn is is jumping off the walls again. Let's get her. She refuses to sit in her seat. Let's put some something really reinforcing on her seat to get her to behave in class. Um, So I wonder how much how much that has impacted, like how we respond to that diagnosis is very different. How we would respond to other diagnoses where you know, yeah, just to continue on autism or even to switch it up. Like if we were, if a kid comes in and we see cerebral palsy as their diagnosis, we automatically respond so differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't take like that. How do we improve their behavior approach right away? We yeah. kind of think, think differently. Um, yeah. And it's a weird like area. Cause like, even as I was saying it, I was like, but also you don't want to isolate people and make them feel like, you know, mm-hmm. they have to be a certain way. It's like, it's right. very weird that balance between like, it's a very serious thing that's affecting them and they need the supports for that. And also we don't want them to feel like, and they shouldn't feel like they have to be another way. Like mm-hmm. very, it's a weird like weighing that has to happen because Ultimately, you want to set individuals with neurodevelopmental disorders up for the most success that they can have in life. Mm -hmm. And so I think oftentimes, like the best approach is to take it seriously. 
because then if you take it seriously, I think there could be more under empathy and understanding for people who don't have ADHD. Like there can like, of course, be downsides to that because there could be, oh, we're going to treat you softer. But for kids who don't like maybe you won't understand that difference and that like subtlety, mm. that could be something important for them to be like, oh, this peer has some is experiencing something different. Mm-hmm. Um, also, some kids are not aware that they have ADHD, but their parents are, which is also what's I think very weird is and might also be a difference between ADHD and autism, as I think there might be a general sense that you as a child have autism, potentially, um, or versus ADHD, because you may just be undiagnosed mm-hmm. for a certain period of time sitting Mm -hmm. in a classroom wondering why there are differences and that's also true for autism too you could very well be an undiagnosed autistic girl who's just sitting in a classroom um and can't understand why certain things are happening the way that they're Mm -hmm. happening um it's all very complex and difficult because also thinking about and i'm still kind of learning about this what is actually being done to provide accommodations for children Mm -hmm. Um, with neurodevelopmental disorders. For ADHD, I think usually kids get put on a 504 plan, um, Mm -hmm. which gives them, which gives them various types of accommodations, which includes um, extra time for exams and assignments. Um, Also sometimes gives them preferential seating. So like if you need, if you have trouble focusing, sometimes putting them in the front of the classroom can be helpful. Um, surrounding them with peers who maybe are a little more studious so that they feel like they have to focus more. Beyond that, it's kind of more on an individual individual basis. Like mm-hmm. if you're a kid with ADHD who's struggling socially, I don't know if there's any supports that are in place within schools. And I don't know if there can be. Right. No, you're absolutely right. Because I've seen where it's like, okay, this kid has has ADHD and is having social issues, but they're ending up at the principal's office where a kid who has an autism diagnosis having social issues is ending up in the speech therapist's office. Mm. So it's, yeah, the response is so different. I'm thinking too about DLD because often if kids with Mm. DLD are struggling in social situations, with a really comprehensive speech and language evaluation, you can sort of get to the root of it. Like, oh, they really struggle with these parts of language. And this is also what they need to engage with peers. So of course, we can kind of get to the root of that. And then hopefully, they can relate better to friends and peers. Um, Whereas with ADHD, I don't know, I don't know enough about it to know if you really can have the same kind of intervention on like your attentional skills. And I'm sure there's something out there, or maybe this is more when you think about medication. I don't know enough about it, but it doesn't seem as clear cut. And especially if there are different sub diagnoses, I imagine it would be very different if you're hyperactive versus inattentive mm-hmm. and context probably matters a huge, a lot too. So mm-hmm. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Or to go back. Hmm. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, go. No, say I just had this thought too that linked back to resources. So if we have this kid who's, you know, has ADHD and there's reduced resources at schools, how great is it that there's this pill that it, when you give it to your kid every morning and then they go to the nurse's office after lunch to get another pill that they'll just behave better without resources being used except for pharmaceutical resources. Like, you know what I mean? I think that's another factor. Yeah, I was going to say that that's an excellent point because we prescribe them these different various like drugs to deal with the symptoms. It kind of, well, first of all, like I don't necessarily agree that you should be prescribing kids as much as they do and as young as they do. Cause then of course, over time there's a reliance on it. And then also you need more to take more to have an effect over time, especially if you're starting like in middle childhood and you need to take it for the rest of your life, that amount's going to go up, which as like, people with ADHD are already predisposed to having, um, to a lot of addicting behaviors. And I don't know if this is a trigger warning for anybody, but I, I will say that 80 individuals with ADHD do tend to suffer from eating disorders 
mort as well, which is a like which also happens, which could be seen like as a particular type of, I guess, similar in terms of like doing something compulsively and impulsively. Kids with ADHD also experience OCD too. That's another sort of comorbid one that happens as well. So like reliance on drugs with those things in mind can happen. And like, that might also be why maybe there's not as many resources. There's an, a good number of kids with ADHD. It's a more common diagnosis than most other things. So you have a huge portion of like, not huge, but you have a big portion of a class that needs support because they have ADHD. If a lot of them are taking um, prescriptions for that, you can kind of be like, okay, hands, you know, maybe hands off. I don't have to worry about them as much. I can focus resources mm -hmm. on kids who don't have that. Right. So I definitely think that that could be something that also is having an impact is the fact that it is at like, you kind of give them a pill and you assume that that's going to fix it and deal with it as mm -hmm. opposed to like providing therapy or um, mm -hmm. providing interventions for them. Mm -hmm. um, also like, um, I think that's also, I think something that I reflect on a bit is this overprescribing and then also who's being overprescribed because um, not all of these kids who get diagnosed young maybe do actually have ADHD. So you have a bunch of kids who shouldn't be taking these prescriptions, who are taking those prescriptions, um, who then are reliant on them as well. So there's also like that particular effect that's also happening. Mm -hmm. That is very complicated. <laughs> Yeah, everything yeah. is with every developmental disorder. There's a lot of because we're not built as a society to help individuals to succeed to the best ability just across the board. Like there are, mm -hmm. are certain systems in place that will benefit certain people. And oftentimes we think of those systems in terms of we definitely think about them in terms of gender. We definitely think about them in terms of race. Um, I would also layer on, not take away from, but layer on. Um developmental disabilities and mental health on top of that. Um, individual, I think um, my understanding of overdiagnosis, black boys tend to get overdiagnosed, especially with ADHD, which is a layering of another identity as well, which also can inform negative stigma, which can happen. Mm -hmm. um, girls are underdiagnosed, which is also potentially having impacts on their ability to succeed in schools and their trajectories long-term. And so it's very complicated and it's like, there's no good solution because what do you do? Do you change the whole school system to right. better like, adjust for kids? Mm -hmm. um, and you can't necessarily policy-wise just go in and tell a bunch of private schools to change how they're, they've been functioning for years. Um, and if like most public schools or private schools are not changing, like what is the impact on that? It really just depends on the school that you go to and the schools in your area, which is what's really unfortunate. Um, it's not on the teachers at all. And even like it's not really 100% on administrators. It's tough to switch a system that's in place that has been in place for so long and you don't know what else to do. And to be like experimenting with a different sort of system, maybe a four day a week school schedule or less hours or more breaks. How do you like integrate that without losing money or having parents be like, this is a weird system that I didn't have in place. I don't want to send my kids to this school. Mm -hmm. That's right. just me like hypothesizing about different impacts because of course we think about solutions how do we deal with the kids with ADHD and do deal with kids who have symptomology of ADHD which seems to be a lot post-pandemic and my like mm -hmm. first instinct is to be like get rid of it all change the system mm -hmm. but actually getting that stuff to happen is incredibly difficult and I think near impossible to do all at once at least to have such a widespread impact individual schools will certainly apply different policies in place but especially as we're seeing now education is like dealing with a lot people in that particular field are already dealing with a lot of things yeah that's yeah I mean yeah there's no answer to any of it but it's just this was honestly an epic conversation <laughs> I feel like I want I feel like I have just like lots of thoughts in my head that are making me 
change my perspective on lots of different things. Um, especially like as an SLP, when you, it's hard because as an SLP, you get re certain referrals for kids. Um, and it's just making me think about that intersection. Yeah. Between DLD, ADHD, and oftentimes they, kids have both diagnoses and, mm -hmm. you know, how to approach it now with all this info. Yeah. And your points Crazy. about sim you can have symptomology that's very similar to something, but that doesn't mean you necessarily have that brain difference and should have the diagnosis of ADHD. And, and I feel like that clarifies a lot for me in terms of the way that we ki see kids present with certain difficulties or differences. Um, that's interesting. And also this internalizing and externalizing piece, that's language I didn't have before taking this psych class. Um, but I see that a lot in DLD and kids that we would have on our caseload too. Some of them internalize a lot more and some of them externalize a lot more and how that can impact your diagnose the diagnosis that you get, if you get diagnosed, how you relate to peers, co-occurring diagnoses down the line, like this internalizing versus externalizing piece is really interesting, especially those gender differences too. So yeah, thank you so much. There's so much to think about. It was really fun to have a conversation about ADHD. I don't get to have like types of conversations like this where I go through a bunch of different things. Um, and mm -hmm. that's to say that also I'm still learning, like how we talk about things differs per field. Like you guys probably have a very different definition way you see it and interact with it um, as opposed to clinical psychologists, as opposed to me, just this developmental researcher. So like, I think it's really cool to have conversations about topics that intersect across multiple different fields. Totally agree. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on this. I agree. I'll echo that statement that this was an epic conversation for sure. The views and information expressed on coffee, tea, and three SLPs are solely host and guest opinions are based on clinical experiences. This is for entertainment purposes only.